Good evening, certainly again, to each and every one, and how delighted we each can feel to appreciate the blessing of God on our behalf, to allow us to assemble and to gather in His name, and to do so for the express purpose of worshiping Him in spirit and in truth, in the words of John 4, verse 24. It is the case, as is usually our blessing, for there to be visitors and those who've come our way, and we certainly trust and hope that each one will feel as if the hour has been devoted in a wise way to direct our attention to truly the things most important as those matters of eternal significance are impressed upon our minds. Jesus, on a number of occasions, reminded us that, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That statement of Matthew 5, 8 brings to our appreciation in our mind and our memory the thrust of wholesome, sound, and faithful Christian living. And tonight I would hope that even as we delve into the Old Testament, revisiting again that book of Zephaniah, the 36th book in the Old Testament, that we might be reminded of how significant, how important, and how interesting can be the saga and the record of these Old Testament days. As we begin this lesson tonight, might I state that it's the second in a series of lessons. We began last Sunday evening looking at this Old Testament minor prophet. And as we did that, we first of all made observation that these books, though they are in that section of the Old Testament called the minor prophets, that does not mean their message is minor. It doesn't mean that they are less inspired, nor does it mean that they are less significant. It merely means that their books are shorter than the major prophets. Those books like Isaiah and Daniel and Jeremiah and others are truly lengthier, but they also are just as much as inspired as are these minor ones. Last Sunday evening as we looked at the book of Zephaniah, we focused our attention on chapter 1, and at that time we noted that the theme of this book is simply this, the day of the Lord. And we reminded ourselves that those of that day were looking so much forward to that day of the Lord, but that they had some misconceptions about it. After all, from verses 14 to 16 of chapter 1, that was to be a day of darkness, a day of gloominess, a day of wrath, on which the God of heaven would render judgment toward those who were not faithful to His calling. As those people thus had the Babylonian captivity shortly in their future, we use that to remind ourselves there too is coming a day of the Lord spoken of in 1 Thessalonians 5.2 as well as in 2 Peter 3.10. And that day is also going to be one on which many shall find themselves unprepared, a day in which God will render His wrathful judgment upon them for all eternity. It is the case though that as we continue our study in the book of Zephaniah, we come to chapter 2 this evening. And as you can see near the bottom of that slide, this second chapter will continue a very powerful and thorough exposition toward the people of that day. And our hope will be that we too can extract some thoughts that will help us as well. One of the things that has often been a very challenging matter to my family and myself as we think about these Old Testament books from time to time is to appreciate that even though these were written so long ago, they have been preserved by the Holy Spirit for a purpose. There are lessons and messages, and the characteristic of the human family has changed precious little since the days that a book like this one was written. And so its message is as wholesome and as meaningful, and things in it can be just as useful to us as it was to the day in which it was written. It is with that in mind we come to the second chapter of this book this evening. You'll notice that 
Zephaniah chapter 2 is such that it has some 15 verses in this chapter. We will not read it verse by verse, but we will notice the movement through the chapter and appreciate some of the things to be found in it. But I would suggest to you that the first three verses of chapter 2 have much to say. And so let's read them at this time. Gather yourselves together, yea, gather together, O nation not desired. Before the decree bring forth, before the day pass as the chaff. Before the fierce anger of the Lord come upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger come upon you. Seek ye the Lord, all ye meek of the earth, which have wrought His judgment. Seek righteousness, seek meekness. It may be ye shall be hid in the day of the Lord's anger. After stating in chapter number 1, those statements about the day of the Lord, the fact that God was going to render His judgment upon even His own people due to their disobedience and due to their failure to come unto Him. We now notice in chapter 2 there's an admonition. Gather together. God through Zephaniah urges the people in soundness of mind to gather themselves together. Verse 2, before the decree bring forth. Verse 2, before the day pass as the chaff. That immediately highlights an interesting observation. The people of that day had an opportunity. There was still the opportunity that they could heed the message of the God of heaven. They could still respond to it in a proper way. But there was going to come a time when that opportunity would no longer be extended. There was going to come a time when that long-suffering character of God would permit them to render a, a response in a positive fashion. And as verse 3 says it, "...ye may be hid in the day of the Lord's anger." It may have been possible for them to have been spared the brunt and the force and the fierceness. Doesn't that perhaps in passing highlight something to us? Our God is a God of long-suffering character, isn't He? In 2 Peter 3, verse number 9, we read it like this. We appreciate there that the long-suffering character of God is highlighted, emphasized, and set before us in language and in words. As Peter made that statement, he said, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God in marvelous love sent forth His Son. John 3.16 still heralds it far and near in saying, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And yet, isn't it true that there are still those who reject the offer of God? They turn a blind eye, if you please, to His offer. And in so doing, just like those of Zephaniah's day, could it be that the Lord's long-suffering nature to them will also be extinguished? Will the time come they will no longer be able to respond? All of us know that answer to be yes if their death come upon them. You and I have in this life the opportunity... That's why every service and every moment is so critical. If there's one in this audience tonight, even more than one, who realizes that you're not right with the Lord? In recent days, some have come forward asking for prayers, making public confession, and there's been bright ways in heaven's response in all those occurrences. 
Doesn't Luke 15 still remind us that there is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner that repenteth than over ninety and nine that need no repentance? And so it is that when one comes forward, not right with the Lord, but makes that right, what a cause for celebration, what a cause for jubilation, and what a cause to appreciate that the Word of God has touched you again, the heart of one, and that person in loving response has desired to be made right with his or her Maker. This very evening, as we thus appreciate it's Zephaniah's day, God's long-suffering nature was going to have a statute of limitations, if you please. Babylon was coming if they didn't change. As we noted last Sunday evening, this book of Zephaniah was written between 630 and 625 B.C. Might we notice in 25 years, the first wave of Babylon was coming. You and I know from history that the people didn't respond as they should have. They were stubborn, they were obstinate, they were disobedient. They never bent their will to what God would have them be. And so indeed they were punished. Chapter number 2 is forevermore a testimony to the fact that God pleaded with them. He urged them, He encouraged them. He sent one by one the prophets to exhort them to repent. After Zephaniah would come Jeremiah. After Jeremiah would come others. And yet the people refused to hearken. What does that say about your heart and mind today? Can you and I have a seared conscience, a hardened heart, so that even though the truth is preached, we too might not respond? Paul dealt with those of that kind, didn't he? In 1 Timothy 4, beginning in verse number 1, he spoke very plainly, did he not, about those of that day whose heart was so seared, it was as if Paul described it as a hot iron. That's always a danger, isn't it? And how needful then it is to be present to the services, always being ready to listen and rightly divide and learn the precious Word so that we too can always maintain that loving, tender response. As you can see on this slide, the thing that God encouraged upon His people here is a word that is so frequently occurring in the Bible, isn't it? The notion is in fact almost in every chapter the concept of repentance, the essentiality of it, and its needfulness. It is for that reason that I desired for us to at least devote a few moments and make some reflective considerations about the way in which it occurred here and its occurrences also elsewhere in the Word of God. We read verses 1 through 3 a moment ago in Zephaniah chapter 2. And in that passage again, God said, Seek ye the Lord, verse 3. It was time for them to make some changes. For some number of years, they had followed the idolatrous ways of sinful leaders who were their kings. For a number of years, they had turned their attention even inward, in which they thought that they could be their own dictators and their own leaders. They didn't wish to think about God, His will, His laws, His demands. They wanted to chart their own course and follow their own compass. That has always been dangerous, hasn't it? For, as we read in Jeremiah 10, 23, written to this same people, just a few years after Zephaniah, God through Jeremiah said, The way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. There isn't anything about that that has changed today. 
you and I are still so much in need of the guidance, the leadership, and to follow through with those matters delivered to us by God. That does indicate some of these thoughts about repentance. As I mentioned a moment ago, this demand through the Word of God, perhaps highlighted in some verses that read like this. In Luke 13, verses 3 and 5, almost repeated verbatim, Nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Those statements were made from the lips of our Savior Himself, urging those of His day to understand there is an absolute requirement of repentance. It is necessary if you are to avoid perishing. It is necessary if one is not to come into the confines of doom and perdition. Repentance was needful then, just as it was in Zephaniah's day, and of course, just as surely as it remains until this day. On that day of Pentecost, when Peter, with such confidence and boldness, he, along with the other eleven, stood up, and that sermon was a penetrating one, wasn't it? Verse 37 says, When they heard this, they were pricked in their heart. Something bothered them. Something agitated them. Something made them realize by virtue of conscience that all was not well. We have put to death, and it's as if the blood of the Son of God is dripping from our hands. They had put to death the Savior. In the next verse, they cried out, Men and brethren, what shall we do? They knew that in their current state, things were not well. Things, in fact, were hopeless. What shall we do? Peter, by inspiration, replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. You'll notice the first thing they were told by Peter himself on that occasion was repent. They already had believed. Notice they already were pricked in their heart. They believed at least 3,000 of them did what Peter had said. And therefore, the next thing needful on their list was to repent. That word repentance, as it occurs there, is a word that is sometimes misappreciated. Certainly not only in religious circles, but even in other circles as well. As we think more about the nature of repentance, wasn't it Jesus who in Luke 5.32 He said, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And given that Romans 3.23 tells us all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, that means all of us are in need of repentance. Every person is in need of appropriate and proper repentance. Consider some of these ideas with me. Some in our world think that just being sorrowful is equal to being repentant. Some think all I need to do is say I'm sorry, and that constitutes acceptable repentance, but that isn't so. Because after all, Paul distinguished the two. Who better than an inspired writer to assist us in appreciating that fact? In 2 Corinthians 7, we notice in verses 9 and 10 that Paul, in powerful appreciation, said, Godly sorrow worketh repentance unto salvation, not to be repented of. And so there, as he distinguished the two, he highlighted that sorrow is an important part of repentance to recognize that it was I by my failures and my sins. It was I who by my sins of omission or commission, as Brother John led us in prayer earlier, that I'm the one that basically sent Jesus to the cross and so are you. 
He died for my sins as well as for yours. He went to that cross to pay the price for me as well as for you. But God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. To quote Romans 5 verse 8, Inasmuch as then that sorrow is something that should be understood, how well does it bring to our mind the statement of Psalm 51.4? David, he had just committed adultery with Bathsheba. He had just been guilty of murder putting Uriah to death. Here was a man who had now come to his senses because Nathan had come to him and said, David, you are the man. You're the man I'm talking about in regard to this little ewe lamb and this stranger that came. And this person took the little ewe lamb of the neighbor that belonged to someone else and slaughtered it to feed this friend that had come. David was angry. He couldn't believe someone would be so inconsiderate. He couldn't believe someone would be so evil in terms of taking what belonged to another. Nathan said, David, you're the man. Bathsheba didn't belong to you and you took her. You put her husband to death. You're the man I'm talking about. In Psalm 51, we have David's response to what Nathan said. Verse 4 says, Against thee, thee only, have I sinned. David came to realize that he was the one guilty of sin. He was the one in need of proper repentance. And Psalm 51 lays out for us the character of how David responded, how he desired to turn into God and to have God cleanse his sin as if it was cleansed pure and white. We also read in that chapter, David made a turnabout in terms of his appreciation. And he professed, "...to thee and to thy word will I be true, and I will proclaim and publish it in thy holy place." He wished to be the bringer of good news and to bear about the character of how that he had been forgiven and he wanted also to express that and to preach it and teach it to others. This same gentleman, David, in Psalm 32 verse 1 said, Blessed is the man whose iniquities are forgiven. Isn't that a lovely passage? He could of course speak about one and as one who had understood how blessed it was to be forgiven. As we revisit some more statements about this one, notice some of these other penetrating passages. I listed two from the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel 18.31 highlights the needfulness of changing one's mind, that is to say to lead to a change in one's action as that's a part of repentance. And then also you'll notice in Ezekiel 18.21 God said to them that repentance was necessary in order for them to live. That sounds much like the Lord's statement again in Luke 13, 3, Except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Repentance is such a penetrating concept, isn't it? It was required in the Old Testament, and you and I can appreciate how important it is today. It is, though, in light of that, that some of those bottom statements on that slide come before us. This idea that there is some misunderstanding today, and perhaps you and I have been called upon to face it. Quite often there are those who plead, come to the Lord as you are. And quite often there are no demands for change. There are no preaching and no teaching about the necessity for change. It's just come as you are and ask God to forgive you and go about living almost as if you have been. 
That is a misunderstanding of repentance, isn't it? We are not able to continue living a life of sinfulness and claim to have repented. We are not able to continue living a life opposed to the nature of the will of God and claim that we repented. For repentance involves a change of mind that manifests itself in a change of behavior, a change of action. You'll notice in passages like this in Zephaniah's day, they didn't make those changes of behavior. They continued walking right down the courseway to destruction, and thus destruction came their way. Is that not in parallel what shall occur today? To any person who refuses to repent, what awaits that individual except to remain distanced from the God who loves him? Because if he won't repent, Jesus said, you'll perish. Those aren't your words or mine, they're the Lord's words. Sometimes repentance is challenging. People don't like to change. I've lived this way for years. I'm comfortable like this. But God says, if that way of life has been sinful in character, regardless whether it was things said, things done, or things left undone, then repentance requires a change. Sometimes words are difficult to change. All of us are creatures of habit, aren't we? We get accustomed to talking in a certain way, but yet once Christ enters our life, it may be certain words must be left behind. Certain ways of speaking must be forever forfeited. So too it is with regard to places one might visit, activities and behaviors. Sometimes our temper can be a problem, can't it? We fly off the handle, we say and we speak things that we later regret. Once we become a child of the Master, we can find His marvelous help to assist us as we strive to overwhelm and overcome that raging temper. Maybe that's one example of where we see that it's so possible to take that wrong way. But may we always be willing to repent. In Zephaniah chapter number 2, we notice this strong message that continues even beyond verse number 3. We'll revisit verse 3 a bit later in the lesson again. But for right now, verse number 4 begins a rather directed message toward a number of nations. We'll only list them somewhat briefly in passing. Verse 4 lists Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, and Ekron. Those were four cities of the Philistine region. In fact, they were major cities of the Philistine area. And isn't it significant here that these were not Jews? But yet God says these nations, these cities have to pay a price. They have not lived as they should have. And we'll see in a moment God will list some of their errors. You and I can only perhaps wonder, what is it that the Philistine people had done that so angered God that He was to pour out His wrath upon them? Not only is the book of Zephaniah a book in which we see God's people, Judah and Jerusalem, answerable to God. We even see some heathen nations that also were subject unto God. In verse 5, you'll notice mention is made of the Kerithites as well as the Philistines yet again. In verse number 7, we notice Ashkelon is again mentioned as well as the house of Judah. In verse number 8, mention is made of Moab and Ammon. All of these nations, some of them were east of the Jordan River, some of them were over near the Mediterranean Sea. 
However, they were all in the bullseye of our God. Perhaps it's fair at this point to appreciate that verse number 12 makes mention of the Ethiopians. Verse 13 mentions the Assyrians as well as the city of Nineveh. All of them answerable to God. That brings us to another quick lesson or at least another point of consideration. As you and I reflect upon that thought, isn't it interesting? Here we're foreign nations. We often think about God's people, the Israelites, and how that they were subject unto Him. But isn't it interesting? Here were foreign peoples and they too were going to suffer beneath the wrath of God poured forth upon them for crimes and for sins that they had done. May we pause to say there has never been a single human being living anywhere on this planet that has not been subject to God. In the patriarchal era, in the Mosaic era, in the Christian age, all people are subject unto God in one way or another. It is not possible for man to say, God doesn't see me. He doesn't hold me accountable. I thus have no sin. For doesn't Paul say in Romans 4 that where there's no law, there's no sin. And so if anyone could rightfully say that I'm not subject unto God, then that means that person can have no sin. Yet it says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, Romans 3, 23. Doesn't that then help us to see that whether it be the people of Moab, the people of Nineveh, the people of Assyria, or even God's own people, all were watched carefully by God and were subject to laws and to things He had given them. So it remains today, isn't it? There are many nations around this world and in every place people are subject to the God that made them. They're subject to the God who has sent forth His Son in the gospel message for their benefit. Isn't it amazing then how critical it is to appreciate the power of the gospel? It can satisfy the greatest needs of your life and mine here in the southeastern United States just as surely as satisfying the greatest need of those in China, India, Australia, Norway, or even the South Pole. That part is a fantastic message, isn't it? No wonder humans couldn't have written it. Only God could provide a message so needful to everybody. As you'll also notice near the bottom of that slide, that brings us to somewhat appreciate one of the things mentioned in verse number 10. I stated a moment ago that God would list some of the errors of these heathen peoples. Maybe we could learn a great deal as we appreciate what their mistakes were. Verse 10 says, This shall they have for their pride, because they have reproached and magnified themselves against the people of the Lord of hosts. And immediately God makes mention on this one occasion about the problem and the error of these heathen peoples of being pride. Specifically, the Ammonites and the Moabites were prideful people. We already knew that, didn't we? As we saw back in the books of Numbers and Deuteronomy, even hinted at in Joshua, this was a people who arrayed themselves in might against the Israelites. They often wouldn't let them pass their land. They often raised themselves up trying to cause the Israelites to stumble and to fall. In fact, isn't it interesting that when we revisit Numbers chapters 22 to 24, mention is made there of a man named Balaam. He was the one who, in fact, was reprimanded by his own donkey in Numbers 22. 
But might we never forget that Balaam was also one who was of this very people and he was called to curse the Israelites. Balak had the nerve to call him and urge him to curse the people of God. You notice with me in this passage, "...this shall they have for their pride, because they have reproached and magnified themselves against the people of the Lord of hosts." It is a dangerous thing to lift oneself up against God's people. God's people have God on their side. If God be for us, who can be against us in the words of Romans 8.31? And is it not said that God shall fight for those that are His? The Israelites did learn that lesson, but sadly enough, they forgot it far too often. This matter of pride then perhaps challenges us to even recollect that rather interesting statement in Jeremiah 48.29. It was there, mentioning again these Moabites, that they in pride have lifted themselves up to their own doom and to their own destruction. One of the most terrible attributes that one can have is an inappropriate pride. Because in that array, one is unwilling to listen to the Scriptures, one is unwilling to listen to the wise counsel of friends, family, neighbors, and others. One thinks he knows his own best way, and one is unwilling in stubbornness, it seems, to listen to anyone. That kind of pride is rebuked so often in the Bible. It was not only the downfall of the Moabites, it was also the downfall of the Edomites. You recall the only one chapter book in the Old Testament, the book of Obadiah? In Obadiah chapter 3, or verse number 3, God said, The pride of thine heart hath deceived thee. The Edomites were a very proud and arrogant people. They lived in a very inconvenient place by most people's standards. They, in fact, resided in the rock-ribbed place known as Petra, Mount Petra. As they dwelled there, their city was high on the mountain, and obviously it was difficult to get to it without them seeing you. And so as enemy troops would march through the corridors and through the spaces of those rocks, the Edomites could mow them down with no trouble. Over the passage of years, the Edomites thought, we are invincible. No one can get to us and defeat us. Not a single enemy nation has been able to do so in centuries. The pride of thine heart, God said, hath deceived thee. It is the case, God said in Obadiah beginning in verse 4, I know where you are, Edom, and I'm coming after you. And let me tell you a little secret, God said through Obadiah. When I'm through with you, there won't be anything left. That prophecy came to pass. The nation of Edom was soon destroyed. There were people able to get to them. People, of course, by the wisdom and will of God. The danger of pride is, of course, seen here in the days of Zephaniah. There were people, in verse 10, who arrayed themselves against God's people. They had the nerve to ridicule the Israelites, to laugh and scorn them. We do read about that in the book of Lamentations, don't we? They said, ha, this is the day we've longed for. God's people are destroyed finally. God said through Zephaniah, you'll rue the day you ever had that kind of attitude. And today, any time we ridicule God's people, the church... When others look upon it and laugh it to scorn, they are laughing to scorn the body of Christ. 
They are looking down upon the precious body, the only one purchased with the blood of Christ. They shall answer for that on the day of judgment. And their way even here on earth may be more difficult and hard because they have neglected, they have in pride lifted themselves against God's people. We know that God looks down from heaven on the children of men, 1 Peter 3.12. And we know that in fact He longingly desires to hear the prayers of His children. When you and I pray in earnestness and we bring our problems and our difficulties to Him, He has promised to hear and He has promised to answer. It is for those reasons at the bottom of that slide, one last thing, and the lesson tonight will draw to its close. Verse number 15 says, This is the rejoicing city that dwelt carelessly, that said in their heart, I am and there is none beside me. How has she become a desolation, a place for beasts to lie down in? Everyone that passeth by her shall hiss and wag his hand. That specifically was stated relative to Nineveh. As you'll notice the context beginning from verse 13 onward, we learned, though, something very interesting in that verse. One of Nineveh's problems was the fact that it dwelt carelessly. Interestingly, as you and I think about dwelling carelessly and the problem of Nineveh, that's really a saga that takes us through much of the prophets of the Old Testament. After all, Jonah was sent to go and preach to Nineveh. At first he did not go, but he later learned that he should, and he did go finally. Nineveh repented in Jonah chapter 3. A hundred and forty years later, God sent another prophet. This time it was Nahum to declare again the destruction of Nineveh because they had stopped repenting. Though once they had turned unto God in proper repentance, they had stopped doing so, and so Nahum was chosen to declare its destruction. Between those two is Zephaniah. One more time here in Zephaniah, God says to Nineveh, the time is coming that those that pass by shall hiss and wag their hand. Look at the city that was once so great, but she has refused her God, and she is now destroyed. That seems to me an interesting parallel to any kind of life without God. A person may appear strong and mighty. A person may appear intellectual, wise, and founded on all that's noble and that which will last. But without God, it's only a facade. It's only something that appears for a little while and vanishes away. It is true that that is an apt description of our life, isn't it? James 4.13 still says, What is your life? A vapor that appears for a little time and then vanisheth away. That kind of description reminds us these years we're here should be lived not carelessly, but carefully. Nineveh's problem was it lived carelessly. That careless living would cost her. It cost her terribly. These last remarks bring us to what should have been the proper response then, as is the proper response now. Verse number 3, Seek the Lord. All ye meek of the earth which have wrought His judgment, seek righteousness, seek meekness. It may be ye shall be hid in the day of the Lord's anger. The only hope that Judah had, the only hope Moab, Ammon, any of the others had, was to seek the Lord. Sadly enough, they did not do it. 
and they met God in the wrath of the judgment that came in 605 B.C. and in the years surrounding that time. Today, all of us are marching toward that day of judgment. It's an appointment we cannot avoid. And as we march toward it, the admonition in the here and now is this, Seek the Lord while He may be found, Isaiah 55, verses 6 and 7. Didn't the Lord admonish us to do that moment by moment and day by day? Didn't Paul say, See that you walk circumspectly, not as unwise, but as wise, to quote Ephesians 5, verse 16. To walk circumspectly is to live carefully, not carelessly. And so the question tonight for you and me is, have you and I lived carelessly? Have we refused to seek the Lord? Have we refused to repent? These lessons of Zephaniah 2 have challenged us in that regard just as surely as it did the people of that day. May our response be wiser than theirs. It is still true from Proverbs 13, 15 that the way of the transgressor is hard. These nations live to understand what that meant. May you and I understand it now before we have to suffer beneath the wrath of that verdict. Tonight, if there would be one or more in the audience, an individual who, upon hearing the lessons of Zephaniah, maybe you realize you too need to make a response to seek the Lord while He may be found. Realize that tonight is a convenient time. Tonight is an opportune time, and if we could be of help to you, to assist you in being rededicated to the cause of the Lord, we'd be happy to assist. If maybe you've never rendered initial obedience to the cause of God, why not come before Him tonight? Fully allow Him to take control of your life and heart. If you need to do that, you must believe and you must repent and you must confess and you must be baptized. If we could help you in that way tonight, won't you come and do so at once while together we stand and sing the chosen song.